Hey everyone, it's Pacific, and welcome to the finale of Season 5 of SCP Archives. We will have a few more things planned for the rest of this year, namely our live show on November 10th in Chicago. You can buy tickets at bit.ly slash bloodyfm. Uh, we'll have a special episode on November 14th, and we'll have another episode in December. Uh, it'll be a fun little terrifying Christmas episode, and you guys will love it. We have some more stuff planned, including Class of 76, uh, which features music from The Blasting Company, which you may know from Over the Garden Wall. Uh, and I have some very exciting news. Their album, For Hire Volume 1, uh, can now be found on Spotify, Bandcamp, or wherever you listen to music. So, if you love The Blasting Company, you love Over the Garden Wall, and you want some good tunes for the next few months, go check out their new album. I'll have more news on Class of 76 pretty soon here as well. Um, and in the meantime, the team is hard at work working on Mayfair Watchers Society, our newest show inspired by and created with Trevor Henderson, the iconic artist behind Siren Head, Cartoon Cat, and thousands of terrifying creatures. So while you're waiting for new SCPs, go check out Mayfair Watchers Society. That's all I have for now. Uh, if you're in Chicago, buy life tickets. This is your last reminder before a live show. And if you're everywhere else, stay tuned. I think a tour might be coming to you soon. So without further ado, this week's episode. Warning. The Foundation database is classified. Unauthorized access will result in detainment. Within this archive, you'll find the procedures, descriptions, and accounts of the most notorious anomalies we've encountered to date. Secure. Contain. Protect. Item number, SCP-5733. Object class, safe. Special containment procedures. SCP-5733 is currently contained in Tape Vault A, Shelf HS, Box number 1984, in the recorded media section of the Site-73 archives. Efforts to identify the actors and locations depicted in SCP-5733 are currently ongoing. Stills of the cast are compared weekly to new entrants in the Foundation Facial Recognition Database. A manual effort is underway to investigate contemporary film production sets and compare these to SCP-5733's locations. Testing of SCP-5733 is open to all Foundation employees, pending approval by lead researcher Dr. Carpenter. Details of the proposed testing approach must be submitted for approval in writing at a minimum of five working days prior to the desired testing date. Testing will take place in a Site-73 standard multipurpose room, equipped with a videocassette recorder and television. Room location will be confirmed 48 hours prior to scheduled tests. Following incident 5733-01. All testing has been suspended. See Addendum 2 for further information. Description. 
SCP-5733 is a VHS tape cassette containing a recording of the horror movie Return of the Suburb Slasher, which was, according to the cassette's slipcase, produced by Crystal Elms Productions in 1983. No other record of the movie, production company, or cast has been found. The movie's plot follows protagonist Heather Campbell preparing to host a party at her family's residence. Located in a suburban cul-de-sac, whilst her parents are away. The date of the party coincides with the 10-year anniversary of a spree killing at the same cul-de-sac. Heather only becomes aware of this later on in the film. The killings were committed by an unknown assailant, dubbed the Suburb Slasher by locals and media in the aftermath. During the party, the Suburb Slasher... Henceforth, SCP-5733-1 returns to the cul-de-sac and, in a manner consistent with contemporary horror movie tropes, proceeds to stalk and murder all five of the friends Heather has invited over, and a police officer who visits the cul-de-sac on a routine drive-by. SCP-5733-1's identity remains a mystery throughout the film. They wear a black burlap sack over their face, and black, loose-fitted overalls, and do not speak at any point of the movie's duration. SCP-5733's anomalous properties manifest at the 97th minute of the cassette's runtime. At the 95th minute, Heather discovers her friend's corpses staged in her living room. SCP-5733-1 appears at the other side of the room and begins to chase Heather. Heather runs into the house basement and locks the door behind her. Once secure in the basement, Heather turns to the camera and says a variation of the following speech. Hey, mister. I don't know you, and I don't know why you just sat there watching this without doing nothing, but please, I'm begging you, help me out here. What can I do to survive this? Following this, the viewer of SCP-5733 can directly converse with Heather, henceforth designated... SCP-5733-2 and advise her on how to escape from SCP-5733-1. The course of the movie then depends on the conversations held with SCP-5733-2. SCP-5733-2 will only converse with the viewer on the aforementioned topic. If the viewer ignores SCP-5733-2, or attempts to talk to her concerning topics other than SCP-5733-1, she, in a resigned manner, will walk back up the basement stairs, unlock, and open the door. SCP-5733-1 will be waiting directly outside the door. The film will then cut to black, and SCP-5733 ejects itself from the machine on which it is being played. When the tape of SCP-5733 is examined, it has a runtime of 97 minutes, ending with SCP-5733-2 locking herself in the basement, but before she speaks with the viewer. Despite extensive testing, SCP-5733-2 has yet to escape from SCP-5733-1. SCP-5733-1 often seems to display advanced knowledge of the viewer's recommendations and advised course of action, and uses this to preemptively sabotage escape attempts. 
Addendum 5733.1 Testing Log All below testing was overseen and arranged by lead researcher Dario A. Carpenter. Test 001 Subject D-1973 Advice D-1973 asks SCP-5733-2 if she has a car. She responds in the affirmative. D-1973 follows this by telling SCP-5733-2 to sneak back upstairs, find the keys to the car, exit by the back door, and drive as far away from here as possible. Outcome. SCP-5733-2 successfully manages to obtain the car keys and leave the residence without encountering SCP-5733-1. However, when she reaches her car, she finds the tires have been slashed and begins to panic. D-1973 urges SCP-5733-2 to smash the windows of her neighbor's cars and unlock the door. After some convincing, SCP-5733-2 does so, and D-1973 proceeds to talk her through the process of hotwiring a car. The car successfully started. SCP-5733-2 laughs and begins to drive away. As she pulls out of the cul-de-sac, SCP-5733-1 leans up from where it has hit on the back seat of the car. SCP-5733-1 brandishes a kitchen knife. SCP-5733-2 screams. The tape cuts to black. Test 002. Subject D-1944. Advice. D-1944 tells SCP-5733-2 to retrieve her father's shotgun, which is shown at the 25-minute mark of SCP-5733, and use this to eliminate SCP-5733-1. Outcome SCP-5733-2 sneaks up to her parents' bedroom and retrieves the gun. At that point... The camera reveals SCP-5733-1 stood in the bedroom doorway. SCP-5733-2 aims the gun and pulls the trigger, yet nothing happens as the gun is not loaded. SCP-5733-1 holds up his right hand and opens his palm. The shotgun shells fall out. SCP-5733-1 brandishes a kitchen knife, and approaches SCP-5733-2. SCP-5733-2 screams. The tape cuts to black. Test 003. Subject, D-1958. Advice. D-1958 tells SCP-5733-2 that resistance against SCP-5733-1 is useless. 
and that she should use a pair of garden shears in the basement to commit suicide. Outcome. SCP-5733-2 responds that this is not an option and begins to sob. After 10 minutes, SCP-5733-2 stands up from the floor, walks up the basement stairs, and opens the door. SCP-5733-1 is outside waiting. The tape cuts to black. Test 001. Subject. Assistant Researcher, Felisa Baker. Advice. After a conversation with SCP-5733-2 on her state of mind and skills, Dr. Baker believed her best course of action will be to obtain assistance from others. Dr. Baker recommended SCP-5733-2 go from house to house in the cul-de-sac in an attempt to find neighbors who could aid her. Outcome SCP-5733-2 left the basement and house without incident and went to the residence of Mr. Loomis, her next-door neighbor. Upon arrival, she found the door ajar and lights off. Creeping through the house, SCP-5733-2 discovers Mr. Loomis and a figure she believes to be his wife apparently sleeping in bed. On attempting to wake him, SCP-5733-2 discovers that he is dead, with his throat slit. The figure in bed next to him gets up, and upon pulling back the covers, is revealed to be SCP-5733-1. SCP-5733-2 screams. The tape cuts to black. Test 015. Subject, Assistant Researcher, Nick Anglin Duskowitz. Advice. Dr. Englund Duskowitz explains to SCP-5733-2 that he works for an organization which may be able to help her and that she should try to call for help from the house phone. He gives SCP-5733-2 a covert foundation phone number in operation in the year 1983. Outcome. SCP-5733-2 emerges from the basement and makes her way to the kitchen, where the landline telephone is located. Upon reaching it, SCP-5733-2 finds that the phone has been destroyed, and a note, written in what appears to be blood, has been impaled into the wreckage with a kitchen knife. SCP-5733-2 reads the note aloud and shows it to the camera, asking Dr. Englund Doskowitz what it means. It reads, The only foundation here is fear. Before he can answer, he alerts SCP-5733-2 to the presence of SCP-5733-1, who has appeared behind her. SCP-5733-1 brandishes another kitchen knife. SCP-5733-2 screams, the tape cuts to black. Test 017. Subject. Field Agents Malcolm Pleasance and Donald McDowell. Advice. 
The field agents were selected for the test due to their knowledge of hand-to-hand -hand combat techniques. They advise SCP-5733-2 to search the basement for supplies, to see how long she can remain there. Once it has been established that a small amount of food and water are available, the agents begin to teach SCP-5733-2 fighting techniques. Outcome SCP-5733-2 is able to remain in the basement for a period of 112 hours before running out of supplies. During this time, Pleasance and McDowell have delivered content equivalent to a basic introductory combat course. The agents have delivered this training in shifts, and when SCP-5733-2 has slept, one agent has stayed awake to keep watch for SCP-5733-1. SCP-5733-2 emerges from the basement and makes her way to the house's front door, where she is confronted by SCP-5733-1. The two engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat over a period of 23 minutes as they fight throughout the house. SCP-5733-2 is able to deploy the techniques taught to her by both agents and, at the conclusion of the fight, knocks SCP-5733-1 to the floor. SCP-5733-2 picks up a candlestick from the dining room table and prepares to attack SCP-5733-1. Both her and the agents celebrate. As she raises the candlestick above her head, the camera pans to reveal a second SCP-5733-1 instance creeping up from behind her. The instance leaps at her, and the tape cuts to black momentarily before contact is made. Test 028 Subject Field Agent Tilda Joan Bennett Advice Agent Bennett was chosen for testing due to her advanced knowledge of thaumaturgy. Agent Bennett instructs SCP-5733 on how to use rudimentary thaumaturgy for offensive and defensive purposes. After several hours, SCP-5733-2 is able to sign basic protective glyphs and perform low-level phonological elemental spells. Outcome SCP-5733-2 makes it to their front lawn before encountering SCP-5733-1, who brandishes a kitchen knife and walks towards her. On Agent Bennett's advice, SCP-5733-2 signs a protective glyph. SCP-5733-1 attacks SCP-5733-2, but the knife bounces off her and away from SCP-5733-1 due to the thaumaturgical protection. SCP-5733-2 counters with a wind spell which pushes SCP-5733-1 away from her. SCP-5733-2 takes advantage of this opportunity and begins to run down her driveway. SCP-5733-1 gives chase and displays previously unseen thaumaturgical skills by casting a freeze spell on SCP-5733-2, locking her in place. 
SCP-5733-1 casts a summoning spell, drawing the kitchen knife back into his hand. SCP-5733-2 tries to scream but cannot. The tape cuts to black. Addendum 5733.2 Incident 5733-01 Forward Following a review of all previous testing, SCP-5733's lead researcher Dr. Carpenter devised the following test with himself as the subject. In preparation of the test, Dr. Carpenter had his team prepare possible options through which SCP-5733-2 may be able to escape from SCP-5733-1. Options were divided into the following categories. What to take from the basement. Where to go upon emerging from the basement. How to exit the house. How to exit the cul-de-sac. Each of the above categories was to contain at least 20 options, and under no circumstances was Dr. Carpenter to be consulted on or informed of what these options would be. On the day of the test, these options were printed out and placed into plastic bowls correlating to the above categories. In addition to this, three cards reading face, body, and legs were created. On the day of the test, Dr. Carpenter began watching SCP-5733. At the 95th minute, two minutes before anomalous properties manifest, research assistants placed the four balls in front of him and the three cards face down. The final test. Subject, Dario Carpenter. Advice. Dr. Carpenter informed SCP-5733-2 that he would be selecting instructions for her at random and that it was imperative she followed them to the letter. What to take from the basement. With eyes diverted, Dr. Carpenter placed his hand into the first bowl and selected an option. He informed SCP-5733-2 to arm herself with the pair of garden shears present in the basement and begin climbing the stairs to exit. With no objections, SCP-5733-2 armed herself and began to climb. Where to go upon emerging from the basement? Dr. Carpenter selected an option from the second bowl and informed SCP-5733-2 she was to go to her upstairs bedroom and then come back down to the dining room. SCP-5733-2 followed the instructions given. There is no sight of SCP-5733-1 at this point of the test. How to exit the house. Dr. Carpenter selected an option from the third bowl. He told SCP-5733-2 to sprint back upstairs and into her parents' bedroom where she was to climb out the window, onto the roof, and then drop down into the garden. SCP-5733-2 followed the instructions given. 
There is still no site of SCP-5733-1 at this point of the test. How to exit the cul-de-sac Dr. Carpenter selected an option from the fourth bowl. He informs SCP-5733-2 that she is to jump over the fence into her neighbor's garden, make her way to the front of the property, and run down the street until she finds help. SCP-5733-2 follows the instructions given and makes it to the road out of the cul-de-sac, which she proceeds to run down. The camera pans, and SCP-5733-1 can be seen bursting out of the door of SCP-5733-2's residence. SCP-5733-2 continues to flee, and SCP-5733-1 does not give chase. SCP-5733-2 begins to celebrate and is asked by Dr. Carpenter how far away the nearest police station is. SCP-5733-2 responds that she does not know, but that together, they'll find it. The road out of the cul-de-sac is uninhabited. The roads are lined by trees and the occasional streetlight. SCP-5733-2 continues running for a period of 20 minutes before she slows down to catch her breath. By this point, the trees have begun to grow scarce, yet only darkness can be seen beyond them. SCP-5733-2 walks for another five minutes. The trees once lining the road have disappeared. Either side of the road is flanked by a pitch-black darkness. Dr. Carpenter asks SCP-5733-2 if she can see anything on the roadside. She responds in the negative. Dr. Carpenter goes on to instruct SCP-5733-2 to take off a bracelet she is wearing and throw it off the road. As soon as the bracelet passes over the boundary between the road and darkness, it vanishes and cannot be seen. SCP-5733-2 asks Dr. Carpenter what she should do next. Dr. Carpenter responds that she should keep walking. An hour passes with the road remaining straight. There have been no other signs of life. Trees once again begin to populate the boundary of the road, growing in density the more time goes by. SCP-5733-2 comments that she can see lights and houses up ahead and begins to speed up. As she approaches the houses, SCP-5733-2 begins to run and shout for help. When she arrives, she recognizes the location. She has arrived back at the cul-de-sac where she lives. Panicked, SCP-5733-2 asks Dr. Carpenter what is happening. Before he has a chance to respond, SCP-5733-1 begins to approach SCP-5733-2, brandishing a kitchen knife. Dr. Carpenter moves to the three cards that face down and picks one at random. Face. He yells at SCP-5733-2 to use the shears to attack SCP-5733-1 in the facial region. She dodges its first swing of the knife and successfully counterattacks. 
the burlap sack covering SCP-5733-1 space rips. Dr. Carpenter turns over a second card and shouts instructions to attack SCP-5733-1's legs. SCP-5733-2 does so successfully, crippling SCP-5733-1's movement. Dr. Carpenter goes to reach for the last card. As his fingers touch it, he realizes he already knows what it says as the last remaining card. Body. He yells at SCP-5733-2 to attack SCP-5733-1's torso and to attempt to land a critical blow to his heart or other vital organs. SCP-5733-2 does so. But SCP-5733-1 dodges the attack, grabs the shears from her, and pushes her. The camera tilts up from SCP-5733-2 on the ground to SCP-5733-1's face, only partially covered by the now damaged burlap sack. Dr. Carpenter approaches the television screen, staring at SCP-5733-1. With the sack damaged, SCP-5733-1's face can be seen, staring straight at the camera. SCP-5733-1 is a visually identical match to Dr. Carpenter. SCP-5733-2 screams. The tape cuts to black. All testing has been suspended whilst investigations are underway into whether use of SCP-5733 by Foundation staff constitutes a data leak. A review of past test subjects' current and historic assignments is underway. Hey everyone, Pacific here with a quick ad break and a reminder. Ad-free episodes are available at our Patreon at patreon.com slash scp underscore pod. And now, back to our show. Item number SCP-6733 Object Class Safe Special Containment Procedures SCP-6733 is currently contained in Tape Vault F Shelf ST, box number 1994, in the recorded media section of the Site 73 archives. Efforts to identify the actors and locations depicted in SCP 6733 are currently ongoing. Stills of the cast are compared weekly to new entrants in the Foundation Facial Recognition Database. A manual effort is underway to investigate contemporary film production sets and compare these to SCP-6733's locations. Description SCP-6733 is a VHS tape cassette containing a recording of the horror movie. The suburb slasher strikes again, which was, 
according to the cassette slipcase produced by Crystal Elms Productions in 1985. The movie appears to be a sequel to SCP-5733, The Suburb Slasher Returns. The primary antagonist of SCP-6733 is the Suburb Slasher, 6733-1, a spree killer who was also present in SCP-5733. When watched, the film causes the observer to become a conduit for the localized destabilization of reality. Only one viewing of the film, ordered by research lead Dr. Carpenter, has been conducted and documented. See test details below. However, it is currently hypothesized that testing may have occurred more times than currently thought. Investigation is underway. Testing The testing ordered comprised of a D-class personnel being shown SCP-5733 up to the point its anomalous properties manifest. The same D-class was then to be shown SCP-6733, with the tape inserted into a VHS player attached to a television situated in a testing chamber. Given the unknown effects of SCP-6733, the D-class would be left alone in the chamber to watch the film and interviewed following the conclusion of the film. The contents of SCP-6733 and its effects are documented in the addenda below. Addendum 6733.1 Testing Log Act 1 Footage begins. Dr. Malcolm Baines enters the testing chamber. D-1974 is sat down opposite a television and VHS set. Hi, Jamie. I'm assisting in today's experiments. How are you feeling following the films? Hey, good to meet you. I'm feeling okay, thanks. One of the nicer experiments I've been involved in. <laughs> good to hear. Uh, we're just going to run some quick tests. Over the next five minutes... Dr. Baines administers cognitive impairment test to D-1974. All results are within baseline. Okay, so with those out of the way, let's talk about the film. Could you tell me what you saw, please? Like, the plot and stuff? Yes, that sounds like a good starting point. It was pretty much your standard slasher film. There's a group of teens who've just graduated high school and go to a local camping site by a lake to celebrate. One of them mentions it's near the site where the killer, the slasher, was shot dead by police a year prior after a rampage. Would this be the events of the first film? D-1974 shrugs. It's not really clear. They all think it's a joke, apart from the main girl. She says her dad's a police officer and she's seen video evidence of the attack. No one references any of the characters from the first film, though, and they don't show up in this one either. The slasher's the only constant. Interesting. Please continue. So, they all go camping by the lake, but soon everything starts going to shit. The site's caretaker gets killed off-screen, then the slasher starts stalking the kids and doing away with them. Doing away how? Uh, let's see... D-1974 checks the notes he made during the screening. He's still got a kitchen knife, 
Same weapon as the first film, so he stabs a lot of them. It's pretty gory for the time it was made. He slashes up someone's face, then the nerdy guy gets stabbed through the eye. That one's pretty good. The camera gets sprayed with blood. <laughs> One of the last teens gets his head crushed wide open. <laughs> D-1974 chuckles to himself. There's a walk-in freezer in the main admin building where one of her mates has been hung up. It's never explained why a campsite needs one of those, but it's just there. <laughs> the slasher locks someone in there, then throws their body, shattering it into a bloody, icy slush. How did those scenes make you feel? Like, there's some good jump scares, and the tension's fairly high at points. But it's a little dated. I've seen scarier, but I've also seen worse horrors. Anything feel like it particularly lingers and stays with you? D-1974 does not immediately respond. Well, the end scene. The end scene is pretty weird. Tell me about it. D-1974 fidgets, avoiding eye contact with Dr. Baines. So, the girl and her best friend, the one that's been looking out for her this whole time, enter into a cellar. The slasher creeps up from behind and grabs the friend, tears his head clean off his neck. The slasher then chases the final teen to the side of the lake. He's advancing on her. The camera's set on the water of the lake. It's a wide shot. You've got the lake water line parallel to the top and bottom of the shot, so it splits the screen horizontally. She's fallen over, crawling away from him. As he advances on her, the camera zooms in. Slowly, though. It takes its time. He does, too. There's music at the start of the scene. Deep, dark synths. This stops as the camera moves closer, though. I forgot to say, it's... It's a long scene. Longer than five minutes. Maybe it was ten? I don't know. It felt longer than ten. So the slasher's approaching her. We're... the viewers approaching the shore. Then the music stops. And it's just... his footsteps and her pleading. And she's pleading. Man, she's... There's these big inhales of breath stifled by the mucus running out of her nose. She's babbling, but it gets to a point where she's not even saying words, just making noise. D-1974 appears visibly distressed. What next? The camera's real close to the shore now, and the slasher stops. He turns his head and looks straight at the camera. You can't see his eyes, but you know he's looking straight at you. And he just stands there, staring. Eventually, the girl crawls out of frame, or the camera zooms past her. I can't remember which. It just keeps zooming in on his face, where his face should be under the hood. The girl keeps screaming off camera. Then there's this guttural, ripping noise. The screaming stops. It just stops. But the camera keeps moving. You can see the individual droplets of blood splashed across him. You can see the fabrics that make up his hood. His face soon takes up the entire shot, and then... And then? It ends. No credits, or nothing. The tape just cuts to black, and it was pushed out of the player. That's it? There was nothing else? No, that was it. Why would I lie? I didn't say you lied. 
Well, the girl was pleading. Was she pleading at you? What do you mean? Was it like she was talking specifically to you? To Jamie? No. I don't think so. It was just... It was a disturbing scene. There wasn't anything weird in an anomalous sense. I just haven't seen a film end like that before. Okay, I understand. Was there anything else notable about the film? Anything else out of the ordinary? D-1974 takes a moment to contemplate the question. I can't remember their names. Whose name? The girl. Her friends. All of them. I don't think they had names. Addendum 6733.2 Incident Log Act 2 Dr. Baines enters D-1974's dormitory room. Hey, Doc. D-1974 rubs his eyes as Dr. Baines enters. Jamie, you wanted to speak to me? Yeah, I had questions. I wanted to know why I had to watch that film the other day. You know I can't share details like that with you. Why do you ask? I just... It wasn't snuff, right? It wasn't real? Well, everything's real in a sense. We have a tape of it. It must have been filmed. But as to the nature of those deaths, it's difficult to say. Did the effects seem realistic? You described one as corny yesterday. I thought it was yesterday, but now I'm not so sure. I kept thinking about that film as I went to sleep, and then I dreamt it. I was there, crawling by the lake, and I remembered all my friends and their deaths, and they seemed so real. And then when I woke up, I could have sworn, I could have sworn that there was a shadow outside of my room. Someone leering in through the frosted glass on the door. What did you do? I was frozen. I've never felt fear like it before. I just sat upright in my bed, staring at the door. I hoped that if I kept watching, it wouldn't come in. When the sun rose and the light entered my room, it faded away. What's the scariest thing you've seen here? I, I don't understand the question. You must have worked with anomalies before. Or is this your first? Dr. Baines is silent for a moment. Why don't we get back to talking about you? You know there couldn't have been anyone outside yesterday. Security guarding the corridor would have seen something and raised the alarm. I want you to keep me updated, though. Any other dreams? See anything else that's untoward? Let me know. Thank you, Dr. Baines. Please, call me Malcolm. Dr. Baines leaves the dormitory, entering the adjacent corridor. He walks to the end and talks to the guard on duty. Hey, uh, hopefully a quick one. Uh, do you know the name of the person stationed here last night? Agent Cunningham, or it was meant to be. He was assigned but failed to show. Went to town before his shift and didn't come back. Bosses will have him fired faster than anything when he does show. I see. Thank you for your time. Night falls. Surveillance footage of the site exterior flags a humanoid shape moving through the surrounding forest. A guard appears and investigates, but finds nothing. Interior, 
D-1974's dormitory. He tosses and turns in his sleep before suddenly awaking and beginning to scream. A guard rushes into the room and calms him, then asks what is wrong. D-1974 is unable to recall what they dreamt. An intruder alert is generated on the sewage pipe in sector SPN-KG. Security guards are dispatched. They make their way through the site to the sector and begin a search. After completing the search with no results, the alert is deemed a false alarm. D-1974 is situated in an interview room, sat at a table in front of a one-way mirror. Dr. Baines swipes his keycard and enters the room. D-1974 stands and rushes over to him. Thank God. You need to help me, please. Whoa, slow down. Slow down. Let's, let's sit down, okay? What's going on? The two walk back over to the table and take a seat. I'm in danger. It's coming for me. I just know it is. I feel like I'm being watched. There's a pair of eyes constantly burrowing into the back of my skull. And I saw it. I saw it! Jamie, calm down. What did you see? The slasher. The suburb slasher. Out of the corner of my eye, around corners, it's stalking me. I'm going to end up just like its victims in the film. You've got to help me. Look, it's okay. It's okay. Take a deep breath for a second. There is a moment of silence as D-1974 collects himself. The slasher can't be here. It would have tripped our security systems, shown up on surveillance. This isn't a sparsely populated site. Other people would have seen it. That's just the thing. It only appears when I'm alone. In between shifts, walking to my next assignment, it just stares at me from a distance. It'll be in a place I can't reach, like on a walkway above me or on the other side of a security door. The one time I said something, I tried to shout came out more like a whimper. It just walked away. But it didn't break eye contact. I'm going to need to notify security about this immediately. And I think it would be good if we got you some medicine. Something that would calm you down. You don't believe me? I'm not saying that. I just think you haven't slept and you're in a heightened state right now. If we're going to figure out what's going on, we need you lucid. How long have you worked at the Foundation? Excuse me? You know what you're doing, right? Of course I do. So I'm going to go and get some... Dr. Baines pauses. Fuck, let me try that again. I'm going to go and get help. Is that okay? After a brief moment, D-1974 nods. Stay here. I'll be back shortly. Dr. Baines walks to the room door, swipes his keycard to unlock it, and leaves. It's going to be okay. D-1974 continues to repeat this mantra to himself. He stands and begins to pace the room. D-1974 halts in place. He turns to face the mirror and exhales. His breath condenses in front of him. Temperature sensors within the room register a significant drop. You're here, aren't you? A gloved fist punches through the mirror. D-1974 screams. The shattered glass sprays across the room. D-1974 runs to the door. 
He hurriedly punches a combination into the door keypad, which glows red in a negative response. He shouts in frustration. The fist is withdrawn, then punches through the mirror once more, sending the remaining glass shattering to the floor. In the observation room on the other side stands an entity resembling the suburb slasher, SCP-6733-1. No, 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 no! D-1974, hurried, tries another numerical combination. The keypad flashes red once more. 6733-1 climbs through the broken mirror. Broken glass crackles as it steps into the interview room. Come on! Please! D-1974 tries once again to open the door. 6733-1 begins to walk slowly towards him. In its right hand, it carries a large kitchen knife. It reaches out with its left towards D-1974, who enters the last number in his latest combination attempt. The keypad flashes green and the door swings open. 6733-1 lurches forward, but D-1974 throws themselves into the adjoining hallway, narrowly avoiding its grasp. They hit the corridor wall and collapse to the floor. Help! Somebody help me! D-1974 attempts to stand and run towards the corridor's southern end, but missteps and falls once more. 6733-1 enters the corridor. It brandishes the kitchen knife and approaches D-1974. Hey, what's going on? At that moment, Security Officer Lauren has turned into the corridor from the north whilst on patrol. He draws his weapon and aims at 6733-1. Puts the knife down and step away from him. 6733-1 turns and faces the officer. It does not put down the knife. Last chance. I'm not playing around here. 6733-1 begins to stride up to the corridor towards Lauren. I warned you. The security officer fires a single shot at 6733. The entity appears unaffected and continues to march forward. What the... Lauren fires a second shot, then a third, a fourth, a fifth... 6733-1 is unimpeded. Stop! Lauren continues to fire. 6733-1 is soon stood right in front of him. Lauren fires again, point blank. Yet the bullet seemingly has no effect. He continues to pull the trigger, generating a clicking noise from the empty chamber. 6733-1 stands momentarily still before grabbing Lauren by the neck and raising him upwards effortlessly. 6733-1 brandishes the kitchen knife. Officer Lauren screams. 6733-1 thrusts the kitchen knife upwards through Lauren's submental space. The knife travels via his mouth and into his nasal cavity. 6733-1 then forcefully pulls the knife towards itself, partially bisecting the front of Lauren's face. D-1974 watches, horrified. As 6733-1 turns around to face him, a security siren begins to sound. 
Elsewhere, site security are in the process of being mobilized to contain the anomaly. D-1974 turns and flees. The following events are captured by the security cameras in the southern staff locker room. D-1974 runs into the room, looking around hurriedly. Researcher Wesley McCrea is the only person in the room, having just finished a shift. Hey, what are you doing here unaccompanied? D-1974 puts his finger to his lips and shushes Researcher McCrea. D-1974 runs to a row of lockers, opens one, and climbs in. His panicked face is just visible through the locker's slits. After a moment of contemplation, McCrea follows him, climbing into a locker directly opposite. A few moments later, SCP-6733-1 enters the room. It stalks once around the room before standing at the end of the row of lockers. The row where D-1974 has hidden. It throws open the first locker. The door slams against the next locker before bouncing back. The sound of metal on metal reverberates through the room. 6733-1 makes its way down the lockers, throwing each door open. It reaches the locker D-1974 is hidden in, It stands silently in front of it for a moment, before whirling round and opening the opposite locker containing McCrea. What? No! 6733-1 brandishes the kitchen knife. Researcher McCrea screams. The knife plunges into McCrea's right orbit. Vitreous fluid bursts out as the eyeball loses its structural integrity. His right glass's lens shatters, and broken glass falls into the orbital cavity. 6733-1 applies pressure, driving the knife further. Blood jettisons from McCrea's eye, splattering across the ceiling. Footage is temporarily obfuscated by blood. Attempting to withdraw the knife from McCrea's corpse, 6733-1 discovers it is stuck. D-1974 throws open the locker door, hitting 6733-1 and knocking it off balance long enough for him to escape, exiting the room. 6733-1 affixes McCrea's head to the floor with its right foot and pulls on the knife with both hands. It rockets upwards, and 6733-1 resumes its chase of D-1974. No security footage covers the path taken by the pair upon leaving the room. After a few minutes, the security reconnaissance team, REC, comprised of four members, arrives in the locker room. The team lead, Owens, kneels down and examines McCrea's body. We need to find this thing and fast. Let's split up. The team walk towards the room exit. The sight lights are dimmed. The REC team turn on their weapon flashlights. At all, Meller, take the corridor west. Sweep every room. Rosso, with me. We'll head east. D-1974 runs through the site in search of aid. He makes his way throughout a maze of corridors, banging on doors and calling out for help. 
he finds none. Owens and Rosso enter the Department of Cryogenics Laboratories. Despite being devoid of researchers, equipment is still running. Owens turns to Russo. I'll be right back. Owens heads deeper into one of the laboratories as Rosso heads into the other direction. Clouds of condensed liquid roll out of open cryogenic fluid containers and tumble across the laboratory floor. Owens scans the room and notices the door to a storage locker is ajar. He takes the safety off his weapon and slowly approaches. He throws the door open. The locker is empty. Owens turns round to continue his search, only to be confronted by 6733-1 stood directly behind him. Owens opens fire directly into 6733-1's torso, but it has no effect. 6733-1 grabs the agent with both hands and throws him across the room. With a splash, Owens lands directly in a container of cryogenic fluid. Hey Owens, you in here? A short time later, Rosso returns, looking for Owens. Owens, Owens, can you hear me? The container Owens was thrown into shows no sign of him. Suddenly, Rosso is knocked forward onto the floor by an unknown force from behind. A shattering sound is heard. He hits the floor with force. Many small red crystalline objects are scattered around him. Oh, God. From the vantage point of the newly online camera, it is evident that the crystalline objects are the remnants of Owen's frozen corpse. Impaled in Rosso's back is a large fragment of frozen ribcage. SCP-6733-1 emerges from the shadows in the corner of the room. He slowly walks up to Rosso, who attempts to crawl away. Rosso looks up at 6733-1, which has positioned itself in front of him. Please. 6733-1 responds to Rosso's request by raising its right foot and pressing down on his head. Rosso's face meets the floor as 6733-1 continues to apply pressure. Rosso attempts to scream as a puddle of blood begins to pull beneath his face. His arms swing wildly. With a sudden crack, his scalp splits open and spurts out a mess of viscera. Rosso goes limp. 6733-1 continues to step down. A stream of blood spurts from Rosso's scalp. Then abruptly, his skull is crushed and 6733-1's foot goes straight through the fragments of bone, skin, hair, and brain, stamping on the floor beneath. Dr. Baines makes his way back to the interview room. Turning into the corridor, he spots the corpse of Officer Lauren. Oh no. Hello, are, are you- Dr. Baines begins to run to Lauren's corpse. He stops calling out to it as he notices its mangled face. Hello? Is anyone there? Jamie? Dr. Baines continues to make his way through the site. He comes to the entrance of the site basement. He glances down the stairs before turning to leave. A noise is heard behind him, and he freezes. Jamie? Is that you? He turns and begins to make his way slowly down the basement stairs. 
The steps creak upon contact. He reaches the bottom and enters the dimly lit basement. A figure jumps out from the shadows. We have to be quiet. It's close. Dr. Baines jumps back. The gun falls out of his pocket and lands on the floor. Jamie, you're all right. I was just in the interview room. I thought you were dead. I tried to find you, but I couldn't. The site's abandoned. I can't find anyone. You you were just in the interview room where you left me earlier? Yes. I went to find help, but there's no one else here. It's just us two. We need to stick together. That part of the site is over an hour away on foot. Dr. Baines stares at D-1974. Look, we're scared and tired. It doesn't matter. We just need to press on. Despite everything we know, I think you can't comprehend unadulterated, pure evil until it stares right at you. Today, I think evil has us in its sights. As Dr. Baines begins to move further into the basement, D-1974 takes a step up the stairs. Jamie, we go this way. But... We need to stay close. This way. This way? Into the dark, creepy basement? Are you serious? D-1974 turns and continues up the stairs. Janie, wait! Don't leave! D-1974 emerges from the basement. Full power has returned to the sight lights, to the extent D-1974 and his surroundings look overexposed. He holds up his arm, shielding his eyes from the light. He proceeds to stumble through the corridor, trying the handles on each door as he goes. The last breaks off in his hand. He drops it and continues on, eventually returning to outside the interview room. Baines was right. I, I swore I was on the other side of the site. A pool of congealing blood covers the corridor floor. Within it lies Officer Lauren's handgun. The corpse, however, is nowhere to be seen. D-1974 picks up the gun and proceeds onwards. He turns into the next corridor and immediately shouts out. Oh, thank God. Hello? Hello? Ahead, a figure rests against the corridor wall. D-1974 runs towards it. I need help. There's been a breach. We need to get out of... As he approaches, D-1974 trails off. The figure in front of him is dressed in sight security gear. It holds a lit cigarette in its left hand. It raises the cigarette and inserts the end into its exposed trachea. The trachea slurps and contracts as the cigarette smoke is inhaled. Out. Out of here. R.E.C. Rosso raises his other hand and swats in the direction of D-1974. As he does so, the mess of fibers and viscera at the top of his neck, exposed by the absence of a head, flap about. D-1974 steps backwards, bumping into an unknown object. He spins round and begins to stutter, but is interrupted. Run break. Fuck off. REC Vidal and REC Melor walk around D-1974 towards REC Rosso. The latter reaches into his pocket and pulls out a carton of cigarettes, offering them to his newly arrived teammates. 
D-1974 sprints away. The camera follows, positioned closely behind him. He navigates through a complex maze of corridors which seem to grow increasingly narrow. He enters corridor after corridor until he turns into one and freezes. Ahead of him stands 6733-1. He pulls out the gun, aims, and fires. Nothing happens. He pulls the gun near his face to take a closer look before switching from holding the handle to the barrel. He squeezes. The gun shatters. Fragile plastic fragments scatter across the floor. I found you. D-1974 startles as Dr. Baines approaches him from behind. It's okay. We're improvising. We can work with that. But, but we need to get to the basement, Jamie. You understand that, right? Dr. Baines reaches out towards D-1974. Get away from me! With his full force, D-1974 shoves Dr. Baines away, sending him flying backwards. He collides with the corridor wall. The entirety of the wall shakes before falling completely backwards. As it hits the floor, wooden splinters erupt into the air. Dr. Baines falls with it. Next, a lighting rig falls from the ceiling. It lands on Dr. Baines, pinning him in place. The fallen wall exposes only pitch-black darkness behind it. Ow! What, what the fuck do you think you're doing? Oh, Christ. Oh, shit. An unidentified woman runs into the frame. Uh, I'm sorry. Are you hurt? Oh, I'm all right, I'm all right. Fucking amateurs, man. Christ! More unidentified persons enter the shot. In the background, the slasher begins to walk down the corridor towards the commotion. Look at yourself first. You couldn't get him to the goddamn basement. Who... Who are you people? Can we get a medic on set, please? The slasher approaches D-1974. They halt suddenly and stare directly at the camera. Shit. We're gonna need production and lighting back to reset this. Are they still on the lot? The camera begins to zoom in, focusing on 6733-1's face. As it zooms in, D-1974, Dr. Baines, and the unknown individuals are excluded from the frame. Where am I? Cut. Cut. 6733-1's face takes up the entirety of the shot. Where the hell am I? D-1974 screams. The tape cuts to black. Afterward, the above transcript of SCP-6733's contents was created after the tape was watched by D-1888 during a testing session overseen by Dr. Carpenter. There has never been an individual by the name of Malcolm Baines in Foundation employment. D-1888 has been placed into protective custody and is to be afforded maximum security. Tonight's episode was possible thanks to our patrons. Joining us this week was Parker Dotto, Brightonic, Nathan Logston, Lane, Athena Schwartz, Tristan Colt, Catherine Drake, Temporary Reality Pierce, Zippy Whippy, 
Jeremy Alls, Echo, and Violet Bradbury. SCP-5733 and 6733 were in by Dysandrin. Our host and narrator was John Grills. Heather was Melissa Lusk. Researcher was Rissa Montanez. Dr. Baines was Graham Rowett. D-1974 was Brandon Nguyen. Guard was Rissa Montanez. Researcher was Rissa Montanez. Lauren was Daisy McNamara. McCree was Jesse Hall. Owens was Russ Moore. Rosso was Damon Alums. Vittle was Pacific Obadiah. And Meller was Rissa Montanez. Our sound designer was Travis McMaster. And our music was done by Matt Roy Berger. Our dialogue editor was Daisy McNamara. Our theme song was done by Tom Rory Parsons. I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah, and our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. And this is a Bloody FM show. For more information, visit bloody.fm. <laughs>